what we've learned in the last four years of California being legalized, of Michigan being legalized, of, you know, Oklahoma, is that you have to have your SOPs if you're going to do brand work, which is what only really the only thing you can do if you want to be multi-state, unless you have just a ton of money to buy licenses in every state. You're really looking at brand work. And a lot of people, when they get to brands, they're like, oh, they're thinking about the supplement you know, where you can get all of your stuff done in Utah and get it distributed out to wherever you want. That cannabis is not like that because you can't cross state lines. It's state by state. So one of the biggest things is, well, when you say, how am I going to operate in multiple states? You have to start with, this is why we always start in California because it has probably the toughest regulation for packaging. Like if it's basically like the opposite of New York, like if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere in the packaging. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And a big thank you to everyone who reached out and tuned into the 100th episode to celebrate with me. I hope you guys know how important your support means to me and the success of the podcast. I really couldn't do it without your support. So thanks for tuning in and hitting play every week. And just super happy, super grateful, super honored to be here doing this. And on to the next 100 episodes. To kick today's episode off, episode 101, I wanted to provide a brief update on what the hell is going on with Texas hemp and cannabis. For my Texans, y'all know things are very slow paced over here in the Lone Star State in terms of cannabis progress, but hey, progress is progress, right? Most notably, Austin, my hometown, officially passed Proposition A, which would decriminalize marijuana and prohibit no-knock warrants. For the data nerds out there, it passed with an overwhelming 85%. So I think it's sufficient to say Austin is ready for full-on legalization, but you and I both know that that isn't necessarily how things really play out, and I personally don't think that we're going to see it anytime soon. If I'm also being honest, Austin has been decriminalized effectively my whole adult life. It's not that you couldn't get in trouble. So yes, I understand this initiative fully legally decriminalizes it, but Austin has always been pretty hands-off, especially the last few years when the district attorney essentially told Austin's police department to stop arresting and prosecuting for low-level cannabis crimes. So yada yada, now it's officially decriminalized, but from this OG Austinites perspective, that was really never our problem. What I also want to interject is, I know everyone is always so blatantly blanket pro-legalization, but when things fully legalize, that doesn't always mean open licensure or that the program will be fair. As we've discussed on this podcast many times before, Looking at states like California, where they're still dealing with heavy taxation, six years post-recreational legalization doesn't make for an opportunistic market. So 
All I'm saying is be very clear that while these are steps in the right direction, ultimately how things legalize and what programs get implemented is really what matters. In other news related to Texas hemp, which is my personal backyard since I do operate a licensed CBD business in the state, the verdict is still out on the smokable hemp ban, which is presently in the Texas Supreme Court. And if that passes, would outlaw to some extent smokables in the state of Texas. So pre-rolls, cartridges, etc. And the fine line would be if they outlaw altogether or if they allow retail, but not manufacturing or vice versa. So Time will tell what happens there. And on top of that, we still have the Delta 8 ban slash lawsuit that was in the Texas Supreme Court also, but it was kicked back to the appellate court. Ultimately, my gut is saying that these things will continue to be tied up in litigation and policy until things can be addressed in the next legislative session, effectively happening one year from June next year in 2023. Not only do we have the Texas hemp bill up for reamendment next year, we have the farm bill up too. And I know that's going to stir some stuff up regarding these minor cannabinoids, specifically Delta 8 and even hemp derived Delta 9. So very interesting time for minor cannabinoids and smokables here in Texas. And I'm sure more to come as things progress through. And I will do my best to keep you guys updated on what's happening. And if you have any insight into what's happening here in Texas, I encourage you to reach out and let me know because there's always something brewing in the state. Moving on to today's show, I am joined by the cannabis powerhouse that is Christine De La Rosa, and y'all are in for a super informative episode. I really wanted to have Christine on and tie it into this Texas update as well because Christine is a Texan. She does split her time between Texas and California, and while she predominantly plays in the legal recreational markets specifically in California and now in other states as they've begun to come online, Texas still has a piece of her heart. And I actually got to meet Christine at South by Southwest this past year in Austin. So it just felt really fitting to kind of, you know, tie these things together. And you guys know, I like to, you know, make it make sense. So as far as who she is and what she's up to, the world is having a moment with Christine and it's rightfully so. She's impacted and is continuing to impact so much in our industry for the better. And I was looking forward to sitting down with her for a discussion on To Be Blunt to learn more about how she got into the industry. I know she came from the legacy market and then came into the legal market once it started to open up in California. She is involved in a lot of technology, so getting into NFTs and DAO, and that's reflective of her background prior to getting in the cannabis industry in the telecommunications industry. So she's a big tech nerd, and she is very, very informative when it comes to the topics around social equity, diversity, and inclusion, and everything that makes cannabis fair and equal and accessible to everybody and anybody who wants to be part of the industry. So we get into the challenges also that she's had to navigate bringing her brand into multiple states and what that entails and looks like. She is most notably the CEO and national co-founder of the People's Ecosystem, a BIPOC cannabis company fighting for social economic equity, sustainable and conscious cannabis policies, and she is the fund manager of the People's Group, which invests in diverse and competitive cannabis companies. She was recently named one of the 22 cannabis leaders who will shape the industry in 2022. In 2021, she was on the list for 10 women to watch out for industry luminaries and rising stars. And in 2020, she was one of 35 most influential women 
women in cannabis. As a thought leader and one of the most sought after advisors in the cannabis industry, she also sits on the advisory boards of Tetragram, Regenibus, and Cannabis Doing Good. Certainly so much to cover and unpack with Christine on today's episode. So without further ado, please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Christine to the show. My name is Christine De La Rosa. I am the CEO and co-founder of the People's Ecosystem. And the ecosystem encompasses a lot of different things. We have a fund called the People's Group that invests strictly in BIPOC and women-led cannabis companies. We have the People's Ecosystem that houses all of our licensed properties. So delivery, manufacturing, dispensary, cultivation, all of the things. We have the People's Cannabis, which also sits under the ecosystem, which is our brand, our THC brands. We have Smoke This currently out, and we're coming out with a new product line called Legacy to Legends um, in the next quarter. We have the People's Wellness, um, which will be for the first time in New York City um, at the Attain Dispensaries. Um, We're going to be releasing those next week. Super excited. And then finally, we have the People's DAO which is a decentralized autonomous organization, which we'll get into later when we're talking about it. How I got to cannabis was really through sickness. Prior to that, I was a database architect. I traveled all over the world and in the U.S. building architecting databases for telecoms. So architected databases for DTE before they were bought by Verizon, before they became Verizon Wireless what worked all over the country. And I just built databases. A lot of the things are still in place. They've been updated, of course, since I left, but a lot of our legacy databases are there. And I loved my jobs. I really did. I loved being a consultant. I loved traveling. I loved being in new places. And then in 2007, I got a mysterious illness and I didn't know what it was. 22 doctors in both Dallas, where I was living, and California, where I moved to, didn't know what it was. And so for three years, I worked full-time for Verizon Wireless, building out their LTE network and being sick and not knowing why I was sick and getting sicker and sicker and going to 11 doctors in California who were like, yeah, we don't know what's going on until I was driving down one of the highways on Thanksgiving day. And I had a pulmonary embolism that almost killed me. And so I ended up in the hospital for seven days on blood thinners. They didn't know what was going on. They did a bunch of tests And that was the very first time I heard the word lupus in terms of what that was the illness that I had. So for the next five years, it was a nightmare. I went from being highly mobile, traveling everywhere, jumping on planes, going to vacations and doing all that stuff to burning through my 401k, burning through my savings because I couldn't work anymore. I'm being mostly confined to my bedroom or in my house, unable to shop for myself, really difficult to move around because I was in so much pain. By 2012, I had another life-threatening thing happen to me. I had pericarditis where my lupus thought that my heart was attacking me. So it attacked it. It's what lupus does, right? It says, this really healthy tissue is not healthy, so I'm going to kill it. But it really is healthy and they're killing you. It's killing you. So it wasn't until 2014, 2015 that I started experimenting with cannabis as an alternative. Because at that point, for five years, I had been on 11 different medications throughout the day. Of those 11, five of them were opioids that sat in my medicine cabinet that I took at any given time during the day based on the level of pain. So I can tell you right now, tramadol was nothing. Like tramadol was like aspirin. I'm like, who cares about tramadol? But the oxycontin, the hydromorphine, the hydrocortone, the fentanyl patches, well, those, those were great, right? Except you can't function when you're on those. You can't think. I went from being able to do really complex things to having a hard time remembering what two plus two was. 
So I, I didn't want to continue to live that life. And I thought, I'm taking 11 pills a day. I go to the hospital once a month to get an infusion. What does this look like if I make it to 60? How many pills is that? What have I already killed? What happens to my liver? What happens to my pancreas? Like all the things, right? So I started searching for an alternative and I found cannabis. It took me about nine months. And in the nine months, I was able to get off of all of my lupus medication using a THC CBD regimen that I use much to this day. And I could walk. I didn't have to have a cane. I wasn't confined to my house. I was able to go places. And so I absolutely could have gone back to being a database architect. Sure, no problem. That's always waiting for me even today. But was really angry um, that I had wasted five years of my life um, using synthetic medications prescribed by doctors that actually didn't help. And those are my five, what they call your five highest earning years. I totally lost those because not only have I been told by propaganda at that point that cannabis is bad, but that is the stigma for Mexican people. Like you don't want, you know, don't smoke marijuana or they're going to think you're a lazy Mexican. There are these huge tropes around people of color to not look for holistic medicine. And so I couldn't go back to being a database architect. I actually had to start a cannabis company to make sure that other Latinas and Black women, who I knew a lot of them in the Bay Area, who suffer from lupus because it affects us the most, that they had access to alternative medicine. And you have to first work through the tropes, the propaganda tropes around people of color and the use of cannabis. And that's how I got into the cannabis industry. First off, I can't even begin to understand the extent of what kind of pain you were going through. I have my own experience of how I got into the industry and it came after me being in a pretty gnarly car accident where I was hit by a vehicle as a pedestrian. So I got put on the same, you know, mix of opioids. And that was the alternative. I was in my mid twenties and it was okay. Now I'm confronted with chronic pain. What other alternatives do I have? So I really empathize with that life altering, you know, instance where the only option, at least what is being promoted to you is Western medicine. It is medication and it's no detriment to doctors. I think they do the best that they can, but I'm currently going through a little bit of what you're, you were explaining in terms of trying to go now revisit some doctors to get more answers. And I've gone to at least three or four at this point and sorry, I can't help you go to the next one, but do you want a medication? Cause I can put you on gabapentin. And I'm like, I don't want to be on gabapentin. I don't want to be on medication. And so it's the unfortunate reality that a lot of people are experiencing and being able mm. to one, find the right provider, but also finding out how to procure that medicine, how to understand how to dose yourself is part of that equation, right? So I know that you have so much now that you're involved in the industry from these opportunities for Latino women, your diversity campaigns that you've been trying to champion in the industry. I'm really fascinated with your background in tech, especially getting into Dow. Dow, Dow's, <laughs> I know nothing clearly about Web3 and NFTs yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> and then obviously running your dispensaries and all the operations that go into all those different facets from the growing and cultivation to the actual productization and the dispensary side of things. You're operating in multiple states too. So I want to get into a little bit of what that has been like and kind of where you've leaned into setting up a dispensary, getting a license, and certainly want to get your thoughts on licensing. But before we get into that, I am really curious because you mentioned mentioned it, when you're dealing with it from your own personal experience, you're trying to navigate cannabis from pain and trying to find what is the right combination. How did you start to navigate? You mentioned it took you nine months and you found a combination of CBD to THC. Was there somebody that was walking you through, Hey, this is the best amount to take from a dosing perspective. This is the best consumption method. I want to get a little bit of understanding from you because you are so 
impactful in the industry for so many people. And I know that that is a component for people, not necessarily operating a business in the industry, but from that consumer who all of our businesses touch is ultimately, you know, the opportunity to consume cannabis legally, freely. How, how did you start to navigate how much to take and what works for you? So remember, this is 2015. And in 2015, there was not a lot of information on the internet like there is now. Like now there's so much more than I had access to. Mostly what you saw was basically YouTube videos of two dudes smoking a doob and like laughing hysterically and ripping bongs. And that's what you had. So I didn't actually, the internet didn't help me as much. There were some like really random sort of deeply embedded like information about, you know, CBD, about the endocannabinoid system, a little bit around terpenes. Lethally was coming, was pretty in place. So you could look up strains and they kind of told you what they were supposed to do. Like, you know, and, and of course at that point we only had medical in California. So they could tell you it was purple punch and it could be granddaddy purple. Like you didn't really know, right? Like not like now you have COAs and things like that. And they did have stuff like that, like at the time, but Nobody at the dispensaries told me that. Like I had to learn, like that was, I think the biggest shift that I've seen in the last seven years is that butt tenders are now way more knowledgeable than when I went to my first thing and no shade to the butt tenders. Nobody was teaching them. There wasn't the internet. Like there was just like nothing. So it was really for me, trial and error. Like now I could have done it much faster with, with all of the technology that we currently have. It was sort of like test and not test. I, I remember the first time I went into my first legal dispensary, I just bought as much as I could afford. And it was flour, it was tincture, it was gummies, it was chocolate, it was, you know, blunts, it was, you know, pre-rolls. And I just started trying everything. And then I kind of got rid of the things I didn't like. So like, I'm, I was a very heavy cigarette smoker for most of my young adult life. I quit like... Well, I say, I say young adult, but I was probably 40 when I quit. So it's been, it was quite some time that I smoked. So I didn't want to smoke flour because it made me want to have a cigarette. But what happened is that when I was quitting smoking, I used vapes, CBD vapes to help quit smoking. So for me, the flour wasn't the thing I wanted to do. It's not that I don't like it. It's just that I have this intense craving, you know, for 28 years of smoking re regular cigarettes. Um, I found that tinctures worked really well for me, but the thing I had to sort of figure out was what do I take during the day? What do I take midday? What do I take in the evening? And what I found for myself was that the THC indica tinctures or gummies worked really well for me to help me go to sleep. When you're somebody who's in constant pain, I remember I would go to sleep and I would sleep, but in my, my brain was active, right? It was like, oh, your, your knee's swelling, your hip's hurting, your foot's doing this, you're about to go into a cramp. You never get into restorative sleep. And I think that was the first breakthrough for me to understand that an Indica THC would put me down. And then I didn't have that racing thought. Like I, I remember being asleep awake. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Indica helped me just go into restorative sleep. So that was the first time, like in five years, I was like, I actually slept. And when I woke up the next morning, I felt better because I wasn't exhausted. And then once I got that kind of dialed in, I was able to decide what I wanted to do during the day. And that's where CBD came in pretty heavily for me because I have a tendency to fall. So being high, like super high during the day when I'm moving around is not my best plan. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I found that doing a, a pretty substantial amount of CBD, like 40 to 60 milligrams a day at the beginning of my day kind of floated me through doing a light sativa. So we're not talking like 72% THD. Like I really always hate when the industry, like that's like something to hang your hat on. And it's like, that's something to hang your hat on for like 2% of the population that want to have 74% THC. But the rest of us, we are people 
that have a bunch of different needs. So some people need high sativa, no shame. I did not. I wanted a light sativa in the afternoon to help me get over the hump. If I had it was experiencing any pain, I could up my dosage. But for the most part, the last seven years, I've been on 40 to 60 milligrams of CBD in the morning. If I needed a light sativa in the afternoon and then a heavy indica in the evening, be it a tincture or a gummy. And it was just trial and error, you know? It, it is. It is so much trial and error and to kind of, you know, bridge a gap and kind of create some context for the listeners too. You know, they know I'm in Texas. I know you're in Texas, but you also split your time in California. And you mentioned kind of starting discovering what you were feeling from a pain perspective happened in Texas. And then you're transferring into California where it's clearly much more open to cannabis. And especially as the years have progressed, it's become even more saturated from a cannabis perspective. So here we don't have choice. Yeah. I mean, CBD, yes, you now see the introduction and the education, which I think hemp has provided to the industry at large, minor cannabinoids and being able to explore, okay, do I want a CBG CBD or a CBN CBD and maybe a little bit of THC, but I'm really curious. Okay. So you are discovering cannabis is helping mm. you. You're living predominantly in California, or at least splitting your time. California is legalizing during this process. You're getting in the industry. How do you start to even begin to tackle, address, create, put into motion? Okay, I'm launching a business. Did it start with cultivation first? Did it start with dispensing first? How did you start to approach the, this works for me. I've now found relief with this product. I know that there are other people who identify with me and they would also love to use this product and not be shamed and have easy access to it in a variety of products and be educated on the journey of trialing and erroring things. How do you start kind of getting in the industry? (laughs) We started in the legacy market. So I didn't even start legally. I started in the legacy, illegal, black, illicit, whatever they're calling it today. We always call it the legacy market because in California and especially in Oakland where I'm from or where I was living at the time, there was a municipal measure on the books called Measure Z. Basically what Austin just did right now, right? Austin just recently, in case you don't know, hey, Austin um, has, has decriminalized cannabis, right? So in Oakland, they said, hey, we're not going to arrest you if you have cannabis. Like, we're just not going to do it. This was back in 2013, 2014. And then they said, you can sell to each other if you're part of a collective. So we were a collective and we started in the back in a closet. You can literally go to the about page on the website and you'll see me in the closet that started out as the dispensary. And what we did is we grew our own in our backyard. And the reason I did it was because over those five years that I was just really sick, I belonged to groups about chronic illness and depression, lupus and how to live with it. Like I belonged to all these groups and all the people in those groups were taking very similar things. Like when you said gabapentin, I was like, yeah, I know that one. Gabapentin, Lyrica, prednisone. Like I've been on all of those. And I thought, most of these women who are black and brown don't feel comfortable going into a dispensary where they don't see themselves representative. And that was very true at that time. And also they don't know, like it's, it seems scary. It's scary to them. So I thought we're just going to open up. We had a, a retail shop. I'm like, we'll just open up a little dispensary in the back. We'll have three strains. That's how we started with three strains that we had grown in the backyard. And we'll just help people. We'll sell it to them, you know, for very low cost. And then, you know, teach them how to figure this out so that they feel comfortable and they can go into a medical dispensary. And immediately immediately when I thought we would have like maybe 50 to 60 people that I knew personally that would come in, we had 4,500 people. 
that signed up within the first three months. And so we moved the dispensary to a 300 square foot facility. And what was cool about California at the time was everything that you could find in a medical dispensary I had on my shelves because they would sell to the collectives. And so if you had this type of vape at this, at the store, I'd have the same vape. I'd have the same thing. And I had better weed because I was going directly to the farms and picking the weed myself. Like I remember many times driving in the middle of the night, a couple hours, and I would go into this house and there'd just be all of these pounds laid out. And I'd go through all of them looking at the crystals. I mean, hundreds of pounds and pick the ones I thought would sell really well. In our dispensary, we'd come back with 28 pounds in the back of the car and then spend the rest of the night packaging them so that we would be have it ready by the time we were open at nine. And so that's kind of how I got into it was very much in a thinking of how we're going to help people and then realizing if there's 4,500 people that in the last three months feel like they would prefer to come to this little place, there's obviously a need for what we're doing. And what were we doing? Well, we were people of color, we were women, we were LGBTQ, we were veterans, they saw themselves reflected. And that's when we began the transition in 2018 to the legal market. And it's been tough. It's been tough. I can't even imagine that transition because of what I'm privy to now in kind of the 2020, 2022 kind of era, especially when you look at California, I think to most people, it is the land of opportunity in terms of Mm -hmm. cannabis and it has, you know, it's the best weed is Cali Kush. And so it's, it's exciting to be a part of California cannabis, but I think people don't fully realize cannabis in general, right? Has all these hurdles. California cannabis has its own hurdles. And then for minorities getting into the industry is even more challenging. And so I am a little curious, what was the experience like transitioning from legacy to legal? Because my understanding is and the assumption, right, I always try to, you know, reference things for the listeners to kind of recall from previous episodes, just for my own journey. So I'm in Austin, I own a CBD brand, the assumption is, oh, Shada, when Texas legalizes, you're going to get a license to sell marijuana. And I know better. I know that that's not how it goes. And I know that's not what my state's going to do to legalize. I can be hopeful. I can do everything I can do to be in line to be a good candidate for a license. But you look at Florida, their limited licensure and their medical only versus Oklahoma open free for all. And I just, you know, I'm wrestling with, okay, well, what does that actually mean for me? Opportunity, small business, you know, homegrown Texas gal to actually have in the legal market. So I can't imagine coming from legacy to go into the legal side of things that it was, yeah, come on, Christine and co like, let's roll out a carpet. You've been doing this. You're helping your community. Here's a license. So I'd love to hear from you. What was that journey of navigating licensing? And then also just to kind of plant a seed with you. And I don't want to butcher this. I know you talk a lot about open markets are more equitable than markets with a social equity component. And I think that's an interesting conversation too, right? Because I think these states, when they legalize and you're getting into getting licensing, they think, oh, well, if I have this social equitable or social equity, sorry, license opportunity, that's checking the box for minorities and other people who, you know, fit into that category to have an opportunity. But we know that's not 
the reality of what's actually happening in these states. So did you find that California was just difficult in general because it was California getting a license? Or did you find that there were other issues being a minority in the scheme of, you know, all these larger people with deep pockets trying to operate legally in the industry? I'm going to tell you, California is a hellscape for anybody, whether you're a big company or a small company, it is just hell right now. It is just such a broken system on so many levels. I mean, I know that we just signed a letter to the government governor asking like right now people are paying 40, 45% taxes on their cannabis. And then you're like, why is two thirds of the market still in the underground market? Because nobody can afford your damn weed, right? It was a hellscape. I mean, it's been tough. Like we've had to pivot several times. When you have a limited license state and you have social equity as part of that limited license state, what ends up happening is that you create the hunger games for people of color. So instead of everybody being able to apply, get a license, figure out their money, and you know, this is just regular things. And and I get what they were saying, like, we want people of color formerly incarcerated to be at the front of the line, except none of those people have been in the front of the line for any of the states. So at some point you have to say, this isn't working. This is not working. When you have an open state like in Oklahoma, which I know people poo on, but they at least have opportunity. Right. So we have applied in several states where we haven't received the license because it was a lottery or because there's a lawsuit, like because every one of these things have failed. The government has totally failed in actually doing social equity. So we went to New Mexico and I was like, I really want to get a license in New Mexico. And 45 days later, we had a vertical license for $1,000. And I had been saying it, but to actually experience it was really difficult because I've been saying like the barrier to entry for people of color, remove those barriers, and then we will be in that system. And what they've done is created just a bunch of barriers. You can look to Illinois, right? Where there's been now two years, we've been waiting for licenses and open dispensaries while the original multi-state operators and state operators that existed in medical have made over $2 billion. And none of that has gone to anybody of color or a woman. So it's been tough. And so that's why I really advocate, like, why are you policing me? Like, why are you policing people of color? And that seems very odd. And so we, when we look to like New York, right? In New York, they did this thing where they're like, if you're an investor, you can only invest in three companies. That is a social equity company. That's what you can invest But if you want to invest in one of the current MROs, you can invest in all nine of them. Why are we letting people be like, you can invest as much as you want over here, but for people who actually don't have access to capital and need capital, you can only invest in three, even if you wanted to invest in 20. And so we keep seeing this where they keep hiding behind social equity and saying, oh, you know, we're going to do social equity. But really for me, social equity means stopping us from being in the industry. It's really uncomfortable to start peeling back the curtain and realizing how things have quote unquote legalized, right? Again, I think the perception of opportunity or the perception of, oh, these states have these social equitable programs and looking at states like New York that has the perception of, and I guess like the kind of question tied into it is the perception is New York is a great program right? For social equity. But the reality is it's confined. So maybe it's, okay, well, you can invest, but you're limited compared to if it's a non-social equitable company. Are there any states that are doing it right? Slash, how do you actually make change? Like, yes, New Mexico seems to be a good candidate from what we can tell so far in terms- They had no social equity, but but they're they're open. open. And they made the barrier for people of color low right? They said, you don't have to pay $50,000 to get a vertical license. You can pay $1,000. 
And then it's up to you. You might be holding that vertical and never be able to realize the profitability because you don't have access to capital, but at least you got the ticket. You know what I'm saying? Like before, like when we applied in LA, it was, they were in litigation for two and a half years. People were holding on to their properties. People were like, you know, and there's a few that are open now, but not, there's, there was 300 licenses that were for dispensaries in LA. And I think I can count on two hands how many have actually opened. It's very sad, again, when you realize what the opportunity perception is and then what the opportunity reality is and how it's actually impacting the industry and who's able to participate. And I appreciate and acknowledge your point too. It's not everybody who has a ticket, which is the reality of an open market, is going to succeed. You know, do you have good marketing? Do you have good quality products? Are you in a location that is relative, you know, popular Mm -hmm. to who is coming to be your customer? XYZ are all these inputs. So great. Maybe you have the license, but you're not doing anything with it. But to not even be able to have access to an opportunity to have your hat in the ring and to contribute to trying to grow something, that's where it's really gut-wrenching. And I think it's demystifying this, again, legalization of cannabis. It's like legalization of cannabis for who? Who is actually going to have an opportunity to participate in it? So you've mentioned a couple of states that you've applied or are doing business in, can you just outline all the states that you are currently operating in? And then I'll follow up from there because I'm just curious because it's different in every state. It is different for every state. So we operate in California. We just got our licenses in New Mexico. So we'll start operations there probably in August. And there we have a dispensary uh, consumption and manufacturing and a delivery and distribution. So we have five licenses. And so that will start operating there. We also now are going to be in New York as a brand. So not as an operational company, but as a brand. Um, And that's really exciting because there's not much we can do right now. You can't do any white label in New York. So everything is around hemp CBD and that's fine. But to be in the market is also very important. We have stuff in Michigan going on right now, which we really love that state and hopefully to close a couple of deals there. So we're super excited about that. Michigan's a sleeper state. (laughs) I mean, well, it's the third largest, you know, really it's a big, it's going to be a big state. I just love it. Do some work in Oregon. We had a dispensary in Oregon. We sold it in 2021 to reinvest it into the, the business to start the brand part of it. So the brand side of, of the people's ecosystem. We have a couple of deals that are brewing also in California for acquisition. And so that's kind of where we operate right now. I don't have a plan to go into New York City because I think it's just a very long time. Like I will be super surprised if their dispensaries from this round are open in three years. So for me, that's like something that I'm going to wait for. I have high hopes for Texas, which I know is just a fool's mission, but I just feel like, I feel like I've seen some movement, like what I'm with my ear. I don't know. You probably have your ear to the ground too, that there might be some movement, but whether or not there'll be some movement for actual licensing of dispensaries is really, you know, yet to be seen. Um, but we do, we do CBD work here in, in Texas. We have a CBD line that we sell, you know, online. We have a couple of stores that carry it. So we just kind of, I think what we're doing what everybody who's not an MSO, which for people who don't know what that is, it's a multi-state operator, those large companies. I think we're waiting to see how everything shakes out. That's a fair position. And you certainly have your hands full trying to navigate all these different aspects of not just one state going from cultivation to manufacturing to sales, which are to your point from New Mexico, different licenses. I know different 
states have different structures for their licenses. And like we're talking about Oklahoma, Florida, they are vertical integration required versus states like New Mexico, where you could just be a cultivator or you could just be a retail operator. My follow-up to that is a little bit more too, because I think what I try to extract out of my guests is the understanding of So you want to work in cannabis. It's like, okay, well, what does that actually look like? So again, you're glamorizing California or projecting Texas opening up, but the realities of actually taking the steps forward to open these doors of opportunity of business, what state has been, let's say the most surprising to you in terms of operating? Maybe it's Michigan. I'm just curious what maybe we don't know about some of these states that you've had to learn by actually being a part of it from a marketing, from a business perspective, because there are different rules of packaging state to state. So how does that impact your business as the people's ecosystem, but that in New York, has probably a different packaging and label than Michigan, than New Mexico. So what has been the most surprising state navigating and and kind of some of these, you know, other aspects of what like operating in all these states, that's a lot. It is. I think the biggest thing we've learned the hard way, and this is what I tell anybody, and this is specifically who people are going to do brands, because I tell people this all the time. What we've learned in the last four years of California being legalized, of Michigan being legalized, of you know, Oklahoma is that you have to have your SOPs if you're going to do brand work, which is what only really the only thing you can do if you want to be multi-state, unless you have just a ton of money to buy licenses in every state. You're really looking at brand work. And a lot of people, when they get to brands, they're like, oh, they're thinking about the supplement, you know, where you can get all of your stuff done in Utah and get it distributed out to wherever you want. That cannabis is not like that. Because you can't cross state lines, it's state by state. So one of the biggest things is, well, when you say, how am I going to operate in multiple states? You have to start with, this is why we always start in California, because it has probably the toughest regulation for packaging. Like if it's basically like the opposite of New York, like if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere in the packaging, because that is the thing that will cause you the most issue is the packaging. I can't tell you when we were doing packaging in Oregon, we would send out the packaging and the, the, I think it was called the OCC would send it back and be like, here's this one little dot that you cannot put on there. And you're like, you're going to send this whole thing back to be redesigned and redone for one little dot. They were like, yes, yes, we are. So I think SOPs are really important and having people on your team that understand the minutia. And this is where it gets expensive, right? If you have the same packaging, the packaging that you have on a Johnson & Johnson over here in California is the same packaging you're going to have in Texas is the same packaging. No, it becomes expensive because you have to have people who understand inherently what that state's going to need. And so one of the things I would tell people, if you're wanting to get into cannabis, understand the amount of regulation that you are going to have to understand, or somebody on the team is going to have to understand and understand that if you don't have that compliance person, you're going to waste a lot of money redoing stuff because I did. I mean, I didn't know I had to get somebody that knew that kind of minutia. So that's like the biggest thing I would tell you. If you're trying to get prepared for licensing, like you want to have a cultivation, then I'm going to tell you, you better be at every state reg meeting. You need to be in the process because in California, much like actually Oregon, we were like, okay, you're going to tell us what the regulations are. And then we're just going to follow the regulation and we're going to get a license. That was a feeling back in 2018. And we really quickly found out that 
we had been regulated out of the market. The ease to be able to just to get a license had been regulated out. And so now we were stuck in this really difficult place trying to figure out how to get a license. So I would tell people it, it is, to me, it's worth it. Like it's been seven years of struggle and we still struggle. Like it's not done, but I think we're better at it now. And so I, I want to encourage people to be in the cannabis industry, especially women, especially people of color. And I also want to be like, let people know it's such a huge undertaking. And I've opened two restaurants. I've had art galleries. Like we've gone through some shit and like, you know, it's been tough, but nothing prepared me for the cannabis industry. Like everything you could do as a regular business, you cannot do as a cannabis industry. So people are like, oh, I can just go do that. I mean, I remember thinking like, oh, I'll just get a line of credit because I've got lines of credit for my restaurants before. And they're like, you think you're going to get a line of credit? No, you're not. No, you're not. You know, so just to be aware of all that. But that's the thing, like you have to figure out your banking. We have like three banks. We have one in the East Coast, one in the West Coast, one one in the Midwest. So that we're always, and they're, they're cannabis banking, like they know we do cannabis, but you never know what the whim of the FDIC, the whim of the banking institution can be like, yeah, no, we have Square. Square has shut us down a million times, even though they advertise that they do CBD. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. So you're constantly in a battle for safe banking. You're constantly in a battle to keep your business open. And so know that it's difficult and also wildly rewarding. I I love it. Like I wake up every morning and I'm like, I have my three screens and I'm like, is this a video game? It's it's a lot of fun. And also we get to smoke weed. So like, what's wrong with that? That's awesome. (laughs) You know? It is. It's fun to be able to work in an industry that you are like directly, especially like as a business, a consumer of. And knowing that what you're doing is helping bring more people into the fold, bring more people into the opportunity of consuming business, just kind of paving the way and helping normalize and professionalize it at the same time is very rewarding. But all those pain points are unfortunately very real and felt across not only, you know, myself and my personal experiences, but I know the listeners because we're all navigating it from different perspectives, right? But the reality is these are the challenges of operating in the cannabis industry. And I'm always shocked at every state to say, I learned something new from every guest. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that you had to do that in New York. That's crazy. And you have your own CBD brand. And one of the things I love is that when you create your brand and you create your product, you're creating it very personally. Like when I create a product, you know, one of the first beverages we came out with is five milligrams. It's a little shot. And people were like, oh, people do 50 milligrams, hundred milligrams who they do. And I'm like, yes. And there's not a beverage that I can drink. Because as a patient, I'm looking for fast acting pain relief and I want something where I can continue my day. So even though, yes, I'm sure there's a whole group of people that want hundred milligrams in a shot, I don't. So I'm going to make the product that I want because I know that there's a group of people out there enough to sustain this product line that also want to have that kind of elevated experience. This is what I love about, especially in cannabis and also CBD and hemp, you're creating the products you wish you could have had when you were feeling really bad. Absolutely. I think that's also where we see the most change and impact happening in the industry is not just creating products for the sake of, I don't know, I do, I do as much as I like Oklahoma for their open market. It's so crazy to me, some of these milligrams, and then they say it's for medical. And I'm like, I just don't know who needs 10,000 milligrams of THC that person's, you know, not functioning then at that point, they're just super sedated, which if that's what they want to be, you know, no skin off my back, but trying to, to your point, if that's their brand, that's their business, but what brand are you creating? And you know, what products do you want to see? And who is that customer that you're trying to deliver for? 
Hello. Just want to take a quick moment to thank my sponsor and full disclosure, my company, Restart CBD. Restart CBD is a brand that I built with my sister. So we are family owned and women owned. We do operate a brick and mortar in Austin. So if you ever find yourself in central Texas, we'd love for you to come say hi. But we also ship nationwide and we carry a wide range of CBD products. We really care about this plant. We really care about educating our customers. This show would not be possible without their support. So please go check us out at restartcbd.com and use code to be blunt for $5 off your next purchase. Thanks. And let's go back to the show. I want to circle back around. You're talking about SOPs. I think it's a hugely important topic, a topic that I think is relevant to cannabis. I hear it, you know, from certain businesses, they implement it, you know, especially the businesses who I think have learned the hard way and are like, oh, I really do need to implement SOPs, but it's not fully adopted in our industry. And so I love when people bring it up because I do think it's an important topic, but the extension of that, where I think you talk a lot about, and so I want to make sure to highlight it and also get some understanding from you is the hiring, the implementation of, okay, so you have SOPs, who's going to implement the SOPs? How do you hire people to be an extension of you, not only in, let's say your brand's growing in California and you can't do everything in that one state, but now you're multi-state operating. How are you hiring and what does that makeup look like at your company? I know you have a lot of different diversity included and represented, which I think is important and very wonderful to have represented at such a high level in the cannabis industry to be talked about and reflected because it's not. (laughs) The reality is it's not, right? But we're changing that. You're changing that. You're helping to champion that. But so how do you find these people? How do you bring them in? Are they a part of your main team? Does your main team operate in California and New Mexico and Michigan? Do you have separate teams that are isolated and perhaps and not isolated like that, but they live in Michigan and you're activating them and you're hiring them? Just how do you approach hiring and diversity and then executing on these SOPs to deliver on the brand value that is you know, what you're building? So we have a management company that manages all of our assets, right? And so the main group of people belong to that management group. And then as we need additional employees or additional partners, then that still goes under the management, but they're part of whatever, like if they're doing manufacturing, they're part of the manufacturing group. And so what we do first with the SOPs is we have to, but I always told this to people, before you hire a single person, you need to find the manufacturer in the state you want to go to. You need to fly out there. You need to sit with their team. You need to show them the SOPs. You need to figure out, are they the right manufacturer for you? They may or may not be. If they're not, then you need to find the next manufacturer because there's no need to hire anybody to execute SOPs if you haven't found the manufacturer and the distributor in that state that you're going to be using to create your product line. Once you identify your manufacturer and you sign contracts, very important. I cannot tell you how many people I've seen that we're in a partnership. No, everything has to be in writing and has to be really super clear. Like so clear, like, you know, I want 0.25 milliliters of this particular thing in each of the whatever I'm doing. I need exactly this amount of this isolate in this chocolate. And the chocolate has to be this type of chocolate that you get from this supplier. It literally has to be that precise. Once you sign the contract with that manufacturer and distributor to manufacture your products to spec, you then need to have them do samples from the SOP. Because sometimes, and I know you know this, 
sometimes when you're writing something, the way a person reads it is different. And so you go back and you're like, oh my God, like you're using this terrible chocolate. Well, you said chocolate. Well, we just went and got some Hershey's chocolate. No, we don't want to use Hershey's chocolate. You know what I mean? So you want to have that sense of like, can they get it done? Do we have all the tweaks out so that they know? Once you have that, then you bring in people in your team and you can do it in two different ways. We've done it in two different ways. We can do contract. And then if they, because if we're going from state to state, I don't need everybody in the state, right? If we decide that that's going to be a big state for us, then we will hire, you know, W2s to manage that territory. But there's a lot of pieces that happen before you get to that person right? All of these things that you have to do to ensure that you're setting them up for success. Like that's the other thing about hiring that I think is super important. A lot of times I've seen in this industry, but also in other industries, oh, we hired this person, you know, they didn't work out. They weren't part of the team. They didn't embed well with the other folks. When in fact, they were not set up to succeed because there were all these other things that they didn't know they were going to have to do. And I've made that mistake as a founder where I've hired somebody. I'm like, yes, you're the people. And then I'm like, go and do it. And they're like, there's no SOPs, there's no you know, framework around what my expectation is. And I think because in the cannabis industry, we move so fast, we just sort of hire people and be like, try it. And we can't do that. We have to be really considered so that people have good experiences with your company. How do you handle the SOP part of it? Are you writing it to your point, iterating on it? You're getting a sample back, for example, and it's, mm-hmm. hey, that's not what I asked for. So are you actively involved in writing these SOPs? Is it a team thing? I have folks I have folks that, have, that write the SOPs. What we do for our company is we start in California and we get the SOP together because we are here and we can easily drive to our manufacturers, right? It's not over the phone. It's not over Zoom. I'm like, oh, there's a problem with this. You hop in the car, you drive. And the person that really does that for us is my co-founder, Charlene Kaabai, because she actually is in Oakland full-time. I split my time. And so she's the one that will hop into her car and be like, she'll be at Vertosa being like, hey, let me try this. This doesn't seem right. She'll go up to the the farms and be like, okay, this is what we're looking for. So I think it's important to have somebody on the ground that can physically go to the facilities when you're having an issue, because sometimes the issue is so small and it seems big because you're far away. Like sometimes mm-hmm. we've been in place where I'm like, oh my God, this is terrible. And then Charlene will drive out there and be like, yeah, it's not terrible. We got it fixed up. No worry about it. You know? And so I think that we are, she is very hands-on as is Melanie Davis, who's the COO, the chief of operations, because she has to, she's the one, op- you know, managing operations, the sales team, like all the people that make it happen, you know? And so I think that we are very hands-on at the beginning because you have to be, it's your company. You have to be hands-on. Like there's no shortcut there. Yeah. And nobody, as you know, nobody will care about your product more than you will. You mentioned something earlier that I just wanted to reiterate because I thought that it is so important to to share again, right? And it goes in line with what you're just saying. Nobody's going to care more than you care. And you were talking about back when you were first starting and driving to the farms and picking the flower up yourself and packaging and being ready first thing the next morning. I do think the industry gets glamorized to, oh, you're selling weed. I can sell weed too. Like this is super easy and nobody wants to actually put the work in or roll their sleeves up or try and learn as things are maybe, you know, failing (laughs) because there's going to be failures. And I just think that it's so refreshing to hear the honesty, which is what I always appreciate with my podcast is like, cut the shit. Like, let's just talk as blunt as we can. Right. Because 
we believe in the industry and we believe in the power of this plant. And if we can't succeed as a community, then who has opportunity to participate in it? And so I really believe the rising tide lifts all boats, but then it starts with, well, how am I in control of myself, my business, my operation, what I'm passing off to a consumer? I talk a lot about too on the podcast, we sell consumer packaged goods, keyword consumer. Someone is consuming this product. So yes, what is the experience? What is the effect? How am I being marketed to? How am I being educated? And so that's on the consumer side. And then obviously too, to your other point, how your employees are empowered and educated and trained through SOPs or through just like general hiring processes and empowered to operate on behalf of your business. It is more difficult. I mean, personally speaking too, we've had those same experiences. You know, we've hired people that, oh, you're really good at X, Y, or Z, but I'm running a thousand miles an hour and I didn't do the best job actually expressing my expectations to you. And then it's getting lost in translation. And sometimes it's not a fit. Sometimes that person, you know, moves on. Sometimes that person can be coached, but it's hard when, again, cannabis is seen as so cool because we are in weed and it is fun and it, it does help us feel better at the end of the day, but it's also a business at the end of the day. So how do you run and operate a business with all these daggers being thrown at you? So have you ever gone to the carnival where there, there's things <laughs> moving and then there, you have to throw, like, that's what it feels like when you're in the cannabis industry, you're moving and darts are being thrown at you and you're trying to dodge them. Yep. And sometimes you get it. And sometimes it's a nick and sometimes it's a bloody mess. Um, but that is such a good analogy for it what is. it's like to be in the cannabis industry, like seriously. And it's not that I'm trying to like discourage people from joining. I just want them to understand the weight of what you're doing and like what that, what the level of commitment you have to have. Um, and one of the things I always tell people, like we have an accelerator going on right now with a bunch of founders, as I tell them, there's going to be a million times you're going to want to quit. Like literally me and Charlene, we've had midnight calls. We're like, can we continue to do this? We're so tired. You know, I said, just stick with it because the next day comes and maybe the sun's not shining, but it's not raining. And so like, that's really an important thing. Like we want to tell you, I don't want anybody to be as surprised as I was about how difficult this was going to be. But in the same breath, I want to make sure that they know to me and hopefully to them, it's worth it. They were prepared. That's the best way of putting it, right? It's yes, this is difficult, but you can try again tomorrow and it's going to be okay. I try to remind my team for better or worse, you know, there's certain aspects where we are extensions of doctors, especially when we are dealing with products yeah, that people are consuming. Absolutely. But I tell them, you know, we're not doctors. Nobody's dying at the end of the day. It's okay if things didn't get done or something didn't go the way we planned. But yeah, I share that same, um, you know, empathy of it is hard. And sometimes you want to throw the towel in. I think, especially here in Texas, the game of mm. when is it coming is like, I don't know. And I'm not really confident. But then at the same time, because of some of the conversations that I'm privy to, and I certainly try to share as much as I can on the podcast, just being realistic about the reality of things will I even get a license? And so you have to kind of, you know, adjust expectations from that regard too, of what is Absolutely. what is yeah. possible and probable given where I live and what opportunities I have access to. I want to ask you another question. You were talking about brand versus like operations, if I can rephrase that. I'm curious in some of these states that you're just a brand, are you licensing your brand to these manufacturers to create? Like, do you actually have a license in every state you're operating? Because I think that was a big surprising aha to me just through the podcast realizing I talked, I interviewed this one gentleman from, they're actually called Possible. They're like a farm in California and their whole 
shtick is you do not need to own a license. All you got to do is bring them the brand idea, have the go-to-market strategy, have the sales team kind of figured out, and they will cultivate process and manufacture you. It's predominantly smokables, or I should say it's exclusively smokables. They're not doing edibles or anything, but then they will distribute your pre-rolls. And then you can be a brand in California without touching a license, which I think is really important to highlight because again, I think people assume that they have to get a license to operate in the industry and that's not true. So do you have a license for all the states you're operating in? And if not, is it a brand licensing deal? Not so much a license right operation, but kind of how is that set up for you and any insight you have to that? I think you have to really, and just because I know that there's probably new listeners who are trying to figure out how to get into the industry. I think the thing that you have to consider is there are physical licenses, right? So physical licenses that you have to have to grow, to manufacture, to distribute, and to dispense. You cannot do any of those things without a license. But here's what you can do without a license at all. No license in any state. And we can look to WANA brands for that kind of footprint, thanks to Nancy, right? Where she doesn't own a single license, but what she did is went into partnerships with manufacturers in the states that she wanted to go in. She had really good SOPs and she's like, let's put together a contract. Now, I don't know what her contracts are like. I'll tell you some of the ones that we've done. We've done some JVs, um, which are joint ventures. We have done some licensing deals and to make sure that that's not a license to grow. It's actually a contract where you're saying, I'm going to license my brand to you, the manufacturer, and then you're going to pay me a percentage of whatever you know we decided in the contract. The other one that I like a lot, and I like it a lot, is royalty. Royalties for me, I like those actually better than licensing. Licensing is kind of like, I'm going to pay you a flat rate. I'm going to create this thing for you. I'm going to go sell it. you know. And if it's good, it's good. If it's not, we'll just stop. We won't do it anymore. Royalties allows the brands to participate in the success of their brand because they're getting a piece of every single thing that is sold as opposed to licensing is kind of just a license. Like let's just say the license is a hundred thousand, right? I'm going to pay you a hundred thousand dollars to use your, like to use your brand, to use your idea, to use your IP, your intellectual property. A royalty is like, if I sell this $10 pre-roll and the net revenue for that is $5, you're going to get 60%. I'm going to get 40%. And I like those revenue shares because I feel like they're more equitable. Um, than licensing agreements are necessarily. And I've looked at places like the Marley brand who sold their their name and now they don't have any control over their name. You always want to have control over your brand and licensing can make sure that you don't have that if it's written just the right way. So I think that, um, so for me, we don't have to have licenses in every state in order to do any of the brand stuff. Now, if I want to have a dispensary, I have to have a license. For sure. So like in California, we have delivery licenses as well. And so what we do in the delivery is that we use our own delivery service to deliver direct to consumer, right? But you don't have to have that. You can have a deal with a manufacturer. That manufacturer can put your stuff on the menu and then sell it to the dispensaries. And you actually never touch the plant. You're literally just that licensed agreement. Super helpful to clarify. And there's so many ways, so many ways, the way that you can sell cannabis in this in the United States. It's just so all about getting good lawyers and good accountants. This is true for sure. More to like explore. I just think it's so fascinating and fun to highlight these ways. Certainly being 
I think more brought up when people have gone through it themselves and kind of learned the hard way through some of these bad deals. So that's how you kind of get to good deals and also influencing perhaps other industries that have other deal structures that we just didn't know were possible in the cannabis industry. And so again, I think it's important to highlight these because even those of us, and I point to myself being in the industry to some extent, certainly not in a legal operating aspect of the industry, but talking to a lot of people who are, and I'm like, oh, how are these people operating? And then you ask and it's, oh, it's this deal or it's that deal. And I don't have a license or I did get a license. And it's like, oh, okay, that's cool. Or that sucks. And that's how you start to build out what is possible. Right. So I appreciate you sharing that final question. I want to turn to tech just a little bit, because I know that you're a part of that conversation. I know your history comes from the tech side of the you know world, helping install these nice LTE, the towers. Mm-hmm. You've been part of the tech world, installing all these LTE towers, transitioning now into the web 3.0, DAOs, NFTs. I can imagine why you were inspired to get back into tech, especially from a cannabis perspective, because that's what you're comfortable with. Surprisingly, I come from tech, but I was not that techie in that side. So for me, NFTs goes over my head, but South by was a really good experience because there were so many NFT pop-ups and conversations and panels and people that I got a really good crash course in it, but I still haven't dabbled in it myself but it is up and coming whether you want to participate or not. And so from your perspective, what was the importance of leaning into NFTs? What is a DAO in conjunction to an NFT? And what do you see as the future of that technology's implication, providing a pathway for cannabis businesses, entrepreneurs, founders, opportunities? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing for me with Web3 is access to capital, like period, stop. Right before, when we look at, I think I saw this, somebody mentioned this, Van Gogh sold his painting for pennies on the dollar. And then years later, it sold for $15 million. He never saw, or his estate never saw any part of that money, right? Because he had sold it to a buyer, that buyer sold it. One of the things I love, I come from an artist background. I have a BFA um, in photography and painting, and I have a master's of humanities. So very much interested on how we treat our artists, our musicians, our creatives, right? And so when I first heard of NFT a couple of years ago, I was like, this is amazing because the actual artists can continue to make money as it's sold, right? And I was very intrigued by that. I also didn't really understand it just because I'm like, it's a gift. Like I can make a gift in my sleep. Like, why is that important? So at the beginning, I wasn't quite understanding. But then when they started to come out with like the DAOs, the Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, I started to see that this is a way in which we could democratize access to capital. And as a person of color and as a woman, which is really hard to get to capital in the traditional sense, this seemed like a really great alternative because right now in this country, you have to have a net worth of $1.1 million, not including your primary household in order to be considered an accredited investor that can invest outside of a mutual fund, outside of the 401k, well, we know that 99% of the people in this country would not be an accredited investor. So that means that only a few people have access to create even bigger wealth. The DAOs, because they're on the blockchain and the blockchain acts as the ledger that a bank would, everything is public, you can see it. You open up the access to put capital into DAOs to many more people accredited or non-accredited, right? 
And there's some things around that, like for our DAO that we're doing, what we're thinking about is like, how do we get capital to people who need it the most, who have successful ideas? But what we've seen in the industry in California is that you can lose a ton of money. And if you're a white guy, another white guy will still write you a check. If you're a woman and you have amazing, impeccable financials, you show growth, you show income, you most likely will not get the money that you're asking for. So how do we democratize this so that it's not just a few people deciding who gets to have a big, a big company, who gets to have a good company, who gets to have an autonomous company, right? And what we've seen a lot, and I've seen this a lot, is when we went into the pandemic, I will tell you this, I've never admitted this to anybody. But my niece was on Musical.ly and she used to go and do songs and do all that, which turned into TikTok, right? And so I had a Musical.ly uh, account so I could see her, her Musical.ly's, right? One day I looked at my phone and there was this thing called TikTok and I was like, what is this? But when the pandemic hit, I was bored like everybody else and I was watching TikTok. And what I noticed was we were moving into this new era, right? This new era of where you can use technology to sell your wares directly to your consumer. And so right now, if you wanted to raise capital for your company, for instance, right, you wanted to raise that capital, you would have to spend about fifteen dollars to $50,000 to get your documents in place to get to the money that you need to get investments. So you have to put money out. in the DAO, and, you, and you always do because you're marketing. But in a DAO situation, everything is in the metaverse. So you don't really have to have a $250 threefold card. Everything is happening in this universe. It's much cheaper, maybe more time intensive, but it's more accessible to most people as opposed to investment into companies is really highly inaccessible. And right now, the SEC is thinking about changing the accreditation rules to being that you have to have $2.2 million to be able to invest in a company that, that is just a company that you're investing in that's not through a fund or not through a 401k. So you can see that capital squeezing out. So we got to find other ways to get capital. Well, especially like you're saying for minorities or women, especially who already have a hard time getting capital, it's kind of to use the words of a doubt was decentralized, right? So it's yeah, decentralizing decentralized. the access to these things that can empower somebody to create, uh, build and, you know, operate and scale a business. So super fascinating. I feel like the boat has not left the shore or the dock per se. Right. Like I still feel like we're in the early stages of it. So I sometimes are in the very early. Oh my God, I'm late. I need to like do more understanding of NFTs and DAOs and like be involved. But I think this is a good, you know, encouragement. I know for the listeners at least, because I know I'm not the only person who's like, what the hell? And I see you always posting and tagging and talking about it. I'm like, one day I'm going to understand what Christine is talking about and posting and sharing. And, you know, that's what we did with our NFT. We didn't create an NFT for collectibles. We could, you know, you can create a lot of different NFTs. We created a membership NFT. Yes. So you can get the NFT and you can go into the educational platform so that we can teach you what, how is everything connected? How do you, how does this work? How do I invest in the DAO and the DAO invest in small businesses? We teach all of that on the education platform before you ever go into the DAO, because we want you to understand exactly what you're getting into. Absolutely. We want to have that conversation with you. And like a lot of people will just open DAOs and be like, you know, give me all your money and I want to spend it on some stuff. And then we don't want to be that, right? We want to be able to say, hey, we are going to be doing this exact thing. This is how it's going to work. And if you don't understand it, let's do it again. 
so that you understand it. So that maybe one day you create your own DAO and we're a footprint on how you might create a better DAO because we're in the, as you said, the infancy, we're at the beginning. Things are going to change. And like the, you know, I'm going to date myself, but you know, Atari is not what gaming is today. And I really feel like we're in the Atari phase of the metaverse. It is. It is just scratching the surface. I mean, I was even listening. I think Meta, I saw an influencer friend. He went to, they were having a meme event at Meta's location in New York. And they were showing a clip of the lady from Meta who's talking about, oh, the metaverse. And she's like, I don't really know what's happening because it's going to change in the next, you know, three weeks, three months, three years. And so I just thought it was interesting perspective coming from somebody who works there in it, on it to kind of, you know, admit it's evolving and we're learning as we go, which is the exciting part. The DAO that you're operating is cannabis specific, right? So you're trying to encourage cannabis funding and access to opportunity. Got it. We have about 20 companies already in our deal flow nice. that are waiting to be invested in. Um, these were people that didn't meet the investment thesis for the fund, the regular VC fund, but these are really good companies and they don't need a lot of capital, meaning they don't need $50 million in capital. We're talking like ancillary business, sure. CBD businesses, technology businesses that could do with 750 or 1 million. And imagine we've vetted these. We've done, we've gone through their data rooms. We've done all this. Imagine if you were somebody in Idaho or in Wyoming or in, and, and you're like, I really wish I could invest in cannabis, but I don't know how to do that, that you could come into the platform, learn how to do it, get into the Dow, and then your money's making you money, right? Your, your money's invested in an asset-backed physical thing. So like the first thing in the deal flow is the real estate. Real estate's easy to understand. You know, you buy the real estate, you rent the real estate, you get paid every quarter, your dividend. That's a real easy way to understand it. So going in with something that's really easy for, as a first investment of the Dow will help people go through it and feel comfortable before they do a big investments that are going to be five, seven, 10 years out. My brain is like, yes, 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 Christine. I'm learning. I'm soaking it up. I'm also confused, but I'm excited. So I'm excited to continue to follow along and learn more as it opens up for you and your team as you're embarking on this journey. Final, final question. What does the future of cannabis look like to you? To me, the future of cannabis looks like a lot of different types of brands because, you know, cannabis is so subjective and so specific to people. And it's such a huge market that I think that we have to have more products than what we have available to us now. We have to have, a you know, a plethora. There's just so many opportunities to, for all different markets, medical market, recreational market, 18 to 25 year olds, 60 to 85 year olds, you know, like there's so many types of people that need this medicine, but we don't not have the brands to support it at this time. And that's because we are not a CPG company. We're not CPG market right yet because of the, right, the barrier to entry. we're not federally legal. Right. So for me, the forward thinking, when I'm thinking about ahead, I'm thinking what's going to survive, right? We see all this M&A happening, mergers and acquisitions. When federal legalization happens, it's going to be a flood of money that's coming in. So people are going to buy up all the licenses. The big companies will buy up all the licenses, Pfizer, Constellation Brands, Altria. What will remain will be the brands. When that huge M&A happens, because the brands are the authentic voice of the culture and of the industry. If I go to a store and I see, no shade to Curly, but I see a Curly brand or I see a Jungle Boys brand, I'm going to pick Jungle Boys. Now, some people will pick the other brand, but what I'm saying is that, that the brands stay 
when everybody's doing mergers and acquisitions. And if you're a small company, you should be really looking at strengthening your brand. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com. 